sometimes um, at a high school graduation, it will be announced that a certain person was voted the most likely to succeed, and it's usually somebody who's trending in a positive direction, obviously, someone that has done well academic, academically and uh, has a great personality, and they are trending towards success. And we're not too surprised if that person at the 10-year reunion of our high school will be uh, head of a local business. They'll have a nice family. They'll have a nice home in a certain area. And, and, and we'll say that, that was expected and that was predicted. And we don't see a lot of surprise or excitement. We're not amazed by that. But if we go to our 10-year high school reunion and we see someone there that we don't even recognize, but they're really well put together, and they, they speak well, and, and we, we think, who is that? They, they look a little bit familiar, but boy, I just don't know who that is. But then, all of a sudden, we realize, that's, that's Johnny. That's Johnny. Remember Johnny? He was a misfit. He didn't belong, and he was, we, 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 he didn't have very many friends, and he was picked on, he was bullied, he, he, was, he was cruelly treated in school. Something happened. It's amazing to us that we see that kind of a transformation. We're surprised, and in a way, there's a glory to that, that that person has been pulled out of that condition. There's an amazing thing about today. <laughs> There's an amazing thing about two young women who testify of God's grace in their life. W we saw that trend happening, but we also need to see what's behind that. We also need to see the work of God that goes into that, and they testify to that. And, and their lives are a testimony to that. We're going to read from John chapter 12 in the Pew Bibles. It's found on page 899. I'm going to read the last part of that chapter. But as we're reading it, let's look for the things in that chapter that surprise us, the things that are amazing, the things that point to God's glory. Bobby, I must be doing something that's making that noise. I'll, I'll try to stop. <laughs> we'll start with verse 35. Verse 35 to the end. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many things, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah saith, 
He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed him, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so, they w so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not walk in, may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. I have not spoken out of my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. <clears throat> I, I know there are a lot of things in this passage that we can talk about. But I want to talk really just about three things that stood out to me as surprising. I think we might miss them because we're so familiar with this passage. We're so familiar with the book of John. And so the familiarity doesn't cause us to really think deeply and be surprised by things because we already know the story. We all already know how it ends. But I'd like to just point out three of those. First, the people most prepared for the Messiah were the most resistant to believe him. Jesus even commanded them, in, as he said, while you have the light, believe in me. But they didn't believe. So he did a, a lot of signs among them, a lot of miracles. And yet, they still did not believe. They should have believed because they had all the prophecies pointing to who Jesus was. The book of Isaiah, the, the passage that was read already in, um, in worship this morning about the suffering servant coming for our sins. The passages that um, the scribes and the, the wise men that Herod turned to, if we remember, we're about to... Uh, to, about to remember the time of the nativity. And we remember the wise men coming to Herod and saying, we've come to see the king. Where's the king? And so Herod was smart enough to know, I'm going to go to the religious leaders of my time and I'm going to see what God has said about who is coming and where he will be born. And guess what? They had the right answer. They knew because they had studied, because they were anticipating the Messiah, waiting for him. Maybe he's coming now. Well, if you're waiting for something, you should be ready to receive him. But they rejected him. 
Jesus said in John chapter 5 when he was talking to the religious leaders, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Some of us may be very prepared to receive the message of grace through Jesus Christ. Maybe we were raised by Christian parents. Maybe we had influences like we're testified of this morning, of friends and family who prayed and taught us. And we are likely or we are prepared to receive, but maybe so far we have not. Maybe we have still reje rejected and resisted believing in the Savior. The second surprise is is something that's hard for us to read and I think hard for us to accept. It's not an easy passage for us because it articulates that God is at work even in the disobedience of people. Jesus commanded that they should believe. They did not believe. The scripture points to the prophecy in Isaiah that says, therefore they could not believe because God was actively blinding their eyes and stopping their ears so that they could not believe. And we're confused by that, or we, we at least give it pause and we think about it and we, we wonder. And if you want a clear answer that ties up every loose end of that issue this morning, you'll have to talk to somebody much smarter than me because I don't have an answer that ties up all the loose ends. But I do know that in the book of Isaiah, we're given some hints about what direction God was taking his people and us who were not his people. Most of us were not. Most of us don't have a, a heritage or ancestry that would say we are, we are among the chosen people of God by our ethnicity. But... The, the book of Isaiah tells us that in the rejection of God's word and of his prophets and of his decrees by his people, he opened the door and would continue and would open the door for the Gentiles. It's in Isaiah chapter 19 where he says this, And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing and they will return to the Lord. Now, the Egyptians were not God's people. They're not children of Abraham, not the sons of Jacob. And he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come to the, into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Now, probably not many of us are Egyptians or Assyrians either, but this is, this is a type. This is an image of God's inclusion of all people in his kingdom. Isaiah also talks of the house of God being a house of prayer for all people, all nations, all will be embraced. So there is a sovereign plan at work in the hardening of the hearts of God's people. It's a sovereignty that is mysterious to us because how is it that God is at work to harden hearts? Well, we also ought to acknowledge that 
if he hardens my heart when I don't know him, he's not changing my condition except keeping it the way it is. We, we need to be cautious about blaming God for the condition of human hearts. If we do not accept him, we bear that blame because of our rebellion against him. But the wonder of the redemptive work of God and his character being displayed in all the mysterious ways he works sovereignly in our lives and in the lives of all humanity, the, the redemptive work is talked about by Paul in three chapters in the book of Romans. And it's almost exactly the same subject, but expanded greatly from, from the brief mention of Isaiah. But Paul talks about in chapter 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans, he talks about the rejection of the Messiah by God's people and the opening of the message to all people and the redeeming of all people and the return of Israel. And then he ends chapter 11 with this expression, with this song. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or, or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Just a word of caution to all of us who must think through this issue. We must, we must accept that the Bible says God is sovereign. But the Bible also says that we as humans are responsible to obey him. And so, on one hand, we have the clear message of human responsibility. On the other hand, we have the decree of God and the, the, the clear message of God that he sovereignly works in the working out of salvation. For the, the Bible says that it is from him both to will and to do his good pleasure. If we reduce salvation and we use the term and I use the term God's plan of salvation there is a plan of salvation and we can articulate it man is a sinner and because man is a sinner he's separated from God and so as we're separated from God we are lost and condemned under his judgment we cannot save ourselves so Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sin and we must believe in that payment for our sin in order to be saved and if we believe in that we are saved and so that articulates the facts of the gospel and we call it the plan of salvation and maybe many things have been written and and said about it that are much better articulated than what I just said but that's the basic truth of it and it is true and we can call it a plan but if we if we make it just a plan, if we make it just an explainable event, we take away the glory that Paul is describing in Romans chapter 11. 
when he breaks into a song about the mystery of God's work, about how it is beyond our comprehension. And the reality is that each of us knows a part of that story. If we know the Lord, can you explain that it was because, well, I decided that I would follow the Lord and, and I, I was smart enough to do this or then I did this and then I did this and we, we articulate our part of that as human responsibility. We do have a responsibility. It is commanded to us to believe. It is a willful act for us to believe. And yet, can we say, can any of us who know the Lord say, well, yes, that was up to me and that's because of me and it's, it's all my doing. If we do say that, we have missed the gospel. <clears throat> John tells us that some of the authorities in that time actually did believe in Jesus. Some of them saw the signs and they said, this, this must be the Messiah. But they were so afraid of the religious authorities of the time that they wouldn't say it. They wouldn't confess that Jesus was the Christ. They kept it to themselves. And, and John gives us an insight. John is unique as a gospel writer because he often gives us insights into the motives behind what people do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke very rarely do that. But John often does it. And he tells us the motives of the people who did not confess what they believed about Christ. He says, they love the praise or the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So just a little bit of comparison. What kind of glory comes from man? Well, it's all around us. It's, it's, it's on television. It's on award ceremonies. It's, it's always happening. The Academy Awards, the Country Music Awards, the, the um, Emmy Awards, or the winners of sports events, the Olympics, or anything else where the winner is 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 glorified or is honored and i know i'm not trying to say that's wrong i don't think it is wrong but i think that it has limitations the glory that man can give us will feel good it will be immediate almost always it's immediate it fuels our pride it brings attention to us and it's temporary. It never goes past this life. Probably doesn't go past a few moments or a few weeks, maybe. The glory that comes from God can feel uncomfortable to us. It can feel uncomfortable to our flesh because it is often delayed. It's not immediate. Very rarely is it immediate. It crushes our pride because it doesn't exalt who we are, but it exalts the God who has worked through us and in our lives. And it brings attention to God, but it is eternal. The third surprise that I think we can see in this is that the righteous judgment of God is coming. Jesus said, there is one who will judge. I'm not here to judge. There is one who will judge. The words that I've spoken will be a judge of all who have heard them in the future. It's an ominous warning because the judgment of God against a sinful world, against sinful people and sinful hearts 
is an absolutely devastating thought that the creator of the universe will wield his power in judgment on those who rebel against him. So Jesus was here in a, in a world that was rebellious, in a world that was rejecting him, and yet he had not come to judge. As a matter of fact, he had come to save the world. And how did he save the world? Well, we talked about it, we sang about it, it was testified to. He saved the world by taking the judgment that we as the guilty deserved for ourselves that the king who decreed justice would be the justifier, that he would buy back what was lost, that he would buy back what had rebelled and what had gone away from him and sought its own way instead of God's way. The the temptation might be that we would see that Jesus came to dismiss sin, to ignore sin, to, to just look the other way and say, it, it's not really that serious. I love you anyway. But that's not the story. That's not the message of the Bible. It, it, it is punctuated by a part of Isaiah, by, by the passage that we read together already that he was pierced for our transgressions. And it says, actually just previous to that, it says he was so marred that we turn our face from him. We hid our faces from him because he doesn't even look like a human anymore. He is so brutalized by the consequences of sin. And so we're tempted to turn away, but we're tempted even today to turn away. We turn away from that image because it points to something we are uncomfortable about. It points to the fact that our sin is that serious, that my sin is that serious. And it takes any glory that I might want for myself away from me because it says, this is for you, and you deserve this. So the seriousness of my sin and the, the greatness of the love of God are combined into one event as he dies for me. There are some in Scripture who, who are described as loving the glory that comes from man. One of those is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the Pharaoh who was in charge at the time of Moses. And Moses went to Pharaoh and said, God has sent me to you to tell you to let his people go. And he says to you, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I will not obey him. I know not the Lord, and I will not obey him, and I will not let the people go. He asked a question, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? Nebuchadnezzar. He's trying three people who do not bow to the image he has created. And he says, if you don't bow, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. And then he says, And who is that God that will deliver you out of my hands? Again, he asks a similar question. Who is the Lord that I should even give regard to him or his people and do what he says? 
And sometimes we might be tempted to ask that question. Who's the Lord that he can direct or he can, he can control? He can ordain my life. I'll do things my way. But there's another way to ask questions. We can look at David as an example. When in, in, in Psalm chapter 8, Psalm number 8, David is considering all that God has done. And he says, I see the moon and the stars, the work of your hands that you've created. And I say, what is man that you are mindful of him? See, if I recognize the glory of God, my question is so much different. If I am offended my, by my glory being damaged, I might say, who is God? But when I realize who he really is, I say, who am I? David said the same thing. Later on, he says, who am I? In First Chronicles chapter 29, he says, who am I? And what is my people that we can offer so willingly? For all things come from you, and from your own hand we have given to you. So, what question am I asking this morning? Am I in any context of my life saying, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that he has a right to, to my life, to my resources, to my time, to my attention? to my worship, to my life, to my health. Who is the Lord? Or are we asking, I look at my life. I look at what I have been given. I saw this morning a father baptizing two of his children to complete the circle of that family. And if I had to speak at that moment, I could not have spoken. Because I know as a father what it's like to see that all of those who God has blessed us with have come to the Lord. But I know my brother, and he is not saying, oh, what a great accomplishment I have done. I know that. He is saying, what a miracle that God has done this. What a miracle. And what a, what a privilege that he might have used me to, to be a part of that. What a great honor. What glory there is in the grace that God has given. This week, we will all have a time to remember and to be thankful. If we are not now thankful... God gives us a remedy for that. Many places in his word, but, but one that, that is so poignant is in Psalm 103, where David, the same one who said, what is man that you are mindful of him, and who said, who am I that I should offer to you? He says in Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? So here's the formula. 
okay? He says, who forgives all your iniquities. If I'm not thankful, maybe I should start like the woman who came to Simon the Pharisee's house and poured out her love on Jesus because she knew she was a sinner. Where Simon did not pour out anything on the Lord because he didn't think he was a sinner. And Jesus told the story of two debtors. And he said, who's going to love more? And Simon answered right. He says, the one that was forgiven more. And Jesus said, that's, that's right. This woman loves more. She was forgiven more. Well, he's not telling us this morning that we should go out and sin so we can be forgiven more. He's telling us to look at ourselves closely, to look in light of the word and realize what a great debt we owe and realize what great sinners we are. So the first step in thankfulness is confession. So to be prepared for Thanksgiving, to be prepared for every day of Thanksgiving, maybe we should start with confession. Lord, these are the things that I have done that have shown the rebellion in my heart, that have separated me from you, that have kept me from being in communion with you, that have destroyed others in the process or damaged others. These are my sins. We shouldn't skimp on that. We should be willing to tell him the ugliness of our soul. But then we should count the blessings that he gives us. So first we confess. Then we count and we say, now, I have this. I have, I have this place of fellowship. I have people around me that I can love and that love me. I have been told about you. I've been a witness to your work. I've, I'm constantly blessed by who you are and what you do. We count those blessings. And then the last thing that we do is we consider. And we consider what's the difference. What's the difference between what I deserve and what I get? The difference is grace through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The difference is that he got what we deserve, so we get what we don't deserve. What kind of love is that? What kind of beyond our imagination is the glory of God's grace for us? Let's pray. Father, we are in awe and amazement as we consider your love for us. As we consider that though rebellious, you have worked in an invisible and an incomprehensible way in our lives, that you've put people in our lives, that you've put experiences in our lives, and sometimes roadblocks and sometimes difficulties, sometimes suffering, but you've done it all to lead us to an understanding that we need you, all to lead us to the realization that we need a Savior, that we are desperate and bankrupt before you, and yet we are amazed that you provide in great abundance things we do not deserve and cannot afford, and yet because of your love, because of who you are, you call us to yourself. None of us can say, we belong to you because of who we are. We belong to you because of who you are. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.